Hello and welcome to Dirty Talk with Chapman and Tati. I'm Chapman. And I'm Tati. We're two college students who aim to discuss sex, romance, and everything in between. On this show, we have frank conversations about our experiences, feminist theories, sexual health, and more. So, just sit back and enjoy a little bit of Dirty Talk. Hello there. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about hookup culture, rape culture, and where those two intersect. Yeah, we're going to take a look at the nuanced aspects of the two and uh, what they mean for us, young people in college. Later on, we will have an interview with Marie Harding from the Women and Gender Advocacy Center. Uh, And our special guest for today is our good friend, Erin. Say hi, Erin. Hello. Uh, So she's here to help us talk about it. But let's just jump right in. Uh, Hookup culture. What does hookup culture mean? Well, I think that hookup culture is just the ability for people to have sex casually outside of our more traditional understandings, um, structured right, understandings. It's, just, it's, it's sex, sex for sex sake outside of a committed relationship. Yeah. Right. Is that a good, a good way of Catch putting and it? Catch and release? Catch and release. Sure. I'm just not convinced that like sex just for sex sake actually exists. So. <laughs> oh, so in the spirit. <laughs> If you listen to our last episode, we liked to lean into the contradiction a bit, and we had a first times episode, and then we had a guest who has yet to have a first time. Right. And so this episode, we are going to discuss hookup culture with someone who does not participate in hookup culture. Why? Because the feminist journey is leaning into the contradictions. (laughs) I love it. It's great. Um, yeah, Aaron's not Aaron's not somebody who I air quotes here hooks up with people, whereas Tati and I both have experience with uh, a not multitude, a, a fair handful of <laughs> lovers. <laughs> um, that's cute. That's a good way of putting hey, it. Hey, Grandma. Right? Sorry. <laughs> it's you know though you already knew, so it's fine. Um, but I mean, for me, hooking up. Is it's something I enjoy because I like being able to, you know, get my rocks off without having to get into a relationship, <laughs> worry about all of the all of the issues that come along with it. Or at least it was for the, the two years before I got into my current relationship, just because it was it was nice to not have the stress of a relationship, but still be able to have sex and enjoy sex. Right. And the other thing is as a feminist, it's I can see a lot of our traditional structures around sex are function not for our emotional well-being but for the sake of control so we use things like marriage and dating practices to like control men and women and control reproduction and historically at least in recent history that looks a lot like telling women exactly what they can do and how yeah i mean i i agree with that i think that Uh, the notion of hookup culture can be empowering for some people. It can be empowering for women if they find um, confidence in um, their sexuality and find confidence in the fact that they don't have to be belong to someone in a sense in order to have sex. Um, I get that. I I also, um, like you said, kind of want to lean into the contradiction of, okay, if we're going to praise people, um, for just having sex for sex's sake, what does that look like and what is the impact on women? Because I think it's different. It's different for a man if he just has sex for sex's sake and different um, conversation if your female friend uh, tells you that she did that. Yeah, I definitely think that it needs a more critical lens. So let's take a listen. NPR did. They did a episode on 
hookup culture and the unspoken rules of sex on college campuses. And I was so excited when I heard it because I was having a hard time battling like hookup culture sounds really great and liberating and, and how I've experienced it as a now sophomore in college is not exactly the the liberation I imagined. Mm-hmm. Um, and and why is it? There are these unspoken rules around hookup culture. So we'll go ahead and take We'll jump right into that. There are certain ideas that send the media into a panic. One of them is hookup culture. College students are, quote unquote, hooking up. Hookup. 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 Hookup culture. Yeah. Where people can just be sitting in a cafe and find someone to hook up with. Are you buying this? Kids are more sexual than ever. Stories about casual sex on college campuses have long been a staple of cable news. But the truth is more nuanced. College students are actually not having more sex than their parents did a generation ago. But something has changed, not just in what students do or what they don't do, but in how they think. So, yeah, so that's the credit to NPR for that podcast. Um, but, yeah, and that's a that's a really interesting point because you think of my parents, at least, you know, grew up in the 60s and 70s, 70s especially. And that was a time of a lot of free. We think of them being a very, very, a very sexual time, right? Especially on college campuses. But it looks like with the resources that exist for college students now, sex is more accessible. It's less dangerous, and it's just just a more open discussion about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think mostly what they're addressing is that hookup culture makes it seem like we're just a really sexual society, mm-hmm. but we're not necessarily having more sex. We're just doing sex differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why I thought this this whole report was pretty insightful because she, well, everyone who reported kind of nailed down these rules. And it was a relief to hear because it was like, okay, good. I'm like not nuts. I'm not like because I am a little hyper analytical and I tend to think about things a lot. And so I was like, maybe this is me and everyone else is just free loving it up. But there's actually <laughs> specific rules about how to treat each other. Yeah. Can we talk about some of those specific Yeah, definitely. Yeah, well, we can jump in here. We'll have her start us off, the person who did the research. (laughs) Here's that NPR podcast. Confronted with is this artificial binary between careless and careful sex. Uh, On the one hand, we have this idea that that when we get into romantic relationships, um, we're supposed to be loving and kind, and the sex that happens in those kinds of relationships is very committed. And on the other hand, we have this concept of casual sex, which is the opposite of that. And that means that all of the kindnesses that go along with romantic relationships are considered off script once casual sex is on the table. So if two students are going to hook up together and they want it to be meaningless, then they have to do some work to make sure that both they and everyone else understands that we're over in this meaningless camp and not this powerfully meaningful one. And so to to sort of convince themselves and other people or to show themselves and other people that it was meaningless, they have to find a way to to perform meaningless. It's not automatic. And they do that uh, by, for example, making sure that they're drunk or they appear to be drunk when they hook up. So my students actually speak in pretty hushed tones about sober sex. Sober sex is very serious. But if the students have been drinking, then that helps send the message that it's meaningless. So those are some a few examples. And, and those were some of the rules I was experiencing. Like, I felt like I was enjoying engaging in like 
free open sorry grandma free open <laughs> sex with people and uh they'd be like oh we're just friends we're just friends mm-hmm. but they wouldn't treat me like friends right. afterwards you know and there's there's this notion and i will ha- absolutely admit that i'm very guilty of distancing myself from people who i've been having casual sex with just so they it creates some sort of distance in my mind i guess and so i'm absolutely guilty of having done that to people where i will push them away which a lot of times has almost gotten more complicated because they were wanting more and then i wanted less and so it built up to this whole thing and it's a reason that i don't have a great relationship with a lot of the people who i've had casual sex with just because I felt that I needed to push them away in order to maintain this level of casualness, but I probably owed them more and I acted like we were dating, but wasn't willing to acknowledge that. And that's, I mean, that's not fair. And I have apologized to those people for that, but that's, that's kind of just the culture and the way it pushes itself. Right. Yeah. I think there's another issue with that binary too, that like if you're um, hooking up or uh, having casual sex, then like she said, some of those rules kind of go out the window in what you would normally treat your part treat your partner as. Um, so that can lead to a lot of problematic issues um, in terms of like, all right, uh, are you actually caring about your partner's like sexual like pleasure? Or are you actually caring about their emotional um, stability afterwards or before or whatever it is? Um, are you treating them kindly, just like in the street? At, during class, I don't know. Yeah, when you see them at work or whatever. When you see them at work. Yeah, I think that that for me is like a huge fear in terms of hooking up is that like, I think that some of those, like some of the ways that I want to be treated, not just as a partner, but as like a human being kind of get thrown out the window because we're operating under this binary of like, we're not caring at all or we're caring 100%. Well, and that, I want to kind of transition off of that because I feel like that that lack of communication and the lack of expectation that comes with the casual hookups is what kind of leads into our next topic, which is uh, rape culture and how that associates. Yeah, yeah, because I think that we're kind of in agreement that, like, what is the hookup culture? Well, it's supposed to be, you know, do who you want to do, get down with it, enjoy yourself, mm-hmm. no rules. But it, it, we're naive to pretend it plays out that way. Mm-hmm. So let's let's do a quick definition of rape culture. Uh, well, I actually I pulled this from Everyday Feminism, wonderful site. Everyday Feminism does a piece called "25 Everyday Examples of Rape Culture." Uh, you can check it out in your own time. I won't make you hear all 25, and they also provide a lot of helpful links. But my five five uh, it's odd to say my five favorite examples of rape culture like i don't know if they're my favorite <laughs> but here are here are five of them one of them is that one in five women and one in 20 one in 71 men have reported experiencing rape that's number 24 number 14 rape jokes and people who defend them number 22 only three percent of rapists ever serve a day in jail number six athletes who are charged with rape um are supported and their victims are called <coughs> career destroyers Number seven, companies create decals of women bound and gagged in order to promote their business. Yeah, rape culture is just this this notion that rape is not always considered to be as much of an issue as it is, especially from positions of higher power. Um, the judiciary system can be problematic about it when you look at these, for example, these kids who are sports teams and then they get accused of rape and they, people are like, oh, well, it's ruining his sports career it's like yeah but it's ruining her life like was it um yeah i think rape culture is about admitting that like rape is a part of our culture because i think sometimes we like to 
it feels comfortable to imagine crimes as being done by people like these monsters who claw their way out of the gutters right, and well, appear and commit crimes when reality is rape is embedded in our culture. Right. Well, because most people, there's this notion that rape is people hiding in bathrooms or hiding in bushes and jumping out and raping people. But in reality, it's it's people that people know. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's I don't know the percentage of of how many people knew their rapists before they were raped, but I know that it's very, very high. Yeah, higher than people anticipate. You're more like it's more likely to be someone you know. Mm-hmm. So the definition is pretty self-explanatory. Yeah, yeah. Rape culture is a culture of rape. So condoning rape. Yeah. Mm, that's a huge part of it, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, I I think that the way that our generation is discussing it is we're trying to understand the more nuanced aspects like you brought up. It's a lot of the people we know. It's a lot of people we trust. It's a lot of situations we didn't know to be afraid of. And so recently in December, there was an article done by uh, the New Yorker and it wasn't an article. It was a short story Mm -hmm. uh, by Kristen Rupinian. Cat Person was a short story she wrote that kind of blew up on the internet. Like, personally, I haven't even read a short story from The New Yorker before. Um, But it came onto my social media from, like, eight different people. Yeah. Um, I think that, I think, Erin, you were the one who shared it with me. Yeah, it's probably accurate. But Julie and I both read it. Yeah. Um, I saw it starting to get some traction on Twitter that morning. And then after I saw, like, five tweets, I was like, I got to read this. And then after I read it, I was like, I have to share this with everyone mm-hmm. I know. <laughs> Everybody read this so we and can I think, discuss and it. I think the reason that it became so viral is just how realistic it was. Yeah, I had a lot of conversations with that following. So if you don't know the story, I don't know. Do we want to yeah. go through that? Um, quick synopsis. Essentially, the main character is a young woman. She's in college. Um, Margot, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and she gets into some sort of like a romantic relationship with Robert, a guy that she meets, but they were kind of hooking up. They were kind of not at the same, there was some, there was some level of in the weird weird kind of fling thing kind of situation um, where it was complicated. And for a lot of it, she thought she knew what she wanted. She wasn't sure what she wanted. And the way he acted was just inappropriate time, uh, inappropriate at some times. And, just very normal at others. Yeah, I really encourage if you have a chance, uh, you can read it or you can listen to it both at the same time. We're hoping that you all as listeners have read it. Yeah, but (laughs) it's viral. I I encourage you to take a look just because um, it's really impossible to explain, which is why it was awesome, is because so much of what hookup and rape culture all tangled up feel like is impossible to articulate quite right because you're like, he did this. Did he do that? Did I do that? Did I invite that? Um, let's play a clip to kind of exemplify it. Realizing that he was still wearing his shoes and bending over to untie them. Looking at him like that, so awkwardly bent, his belly thick and soft and covered with hair, Margot recoiled. But the thought of what it would take to stop what she had set in motion was overwhelming. It would require an amount of tact and gentleness that she felt was impossible to summon. It wasn't that she was scared he would try to force her to do something against her will, but that insisting that they stop now, after everything she'd done to push this forward, would make her seem spoiled and capricious, as if she'd ordered something at a restaurant and then, once the food arrived, had changed her mind and sent it back. She tried to bludgeon her resistance into submission by taking a sip of the whiskey, but when he fell on top of her with those huge, sloppy kisses, his hand moving mechanically across her breasts and down to her crotch 
as if he were making some perverse sign of the cross. She began to have trouble breathing and to feel that she really might not be able to go through with it after all. Yeah, so I think that this was a really powerful image and scene for me. Um, it kind of exemplifies everything that you feel when you're about to have sex with a partner and then you're like oh no I might not actually want to do this right mm -hmm. now with this yeah. person right now mm -hmm. um and it's not I think what's interesting about cat person is that um it's so relatable on so many levels um just because I mean like we talked about I don't particularly hook up that often but I've had this experience with partners with committed partners and um that's an even um more complex situation because then there's an expectation in a relationship that you're going to do uh sexual things with this person that's like what not not why but it's one reason you're in the relationship so right. um for her in this situation um this character she's trying to figure out how do i stop this do i even have the power to stop this all these thoughts running through her mind do i want this maybe not oh my god i don't want this oh my god how do i stop it it's overwhelming. Yeah, absolutely. This is why I brought up sexuality by Kate McKinnon last episode, which kind of works to trace where understandings of sex come from. It's important. I, I think it's it's awesome that Aaron has this perspective of being in a committed relationship because it plays out the same in hookups. Regardless, our understanding of sex is rooted in, um, in a rape culture, and so... And therefore, it's rooted in fear. Yeah, and you don't always know how to how to stop things. Yeah, and there's a there's another part of the podcast we can listen to um, that is about that fear. So I'll play that now. Margot collapsed on the table, laying her head in her hands. She felt as though a leech, grown heavy and swollen with her blood, had at last popped off her skin, leaving a tender, bruised spot behind. But why should she feel that way? Perhaps she was being unfair to Robert, who really had done nothing wrong except like her and be bad in bed, and maybe lie about having cats, although probably they had just been in another room. But then, a month later, she saw him in the bar, her bar, the one in the student ghetto, where, on their date, she'd suggested they go. He was alone, at a table in the back, and he wasn't reading or looking at his phone. He was just sitting there silently, hunched over a beer. She grabbed the friend she was with, a guy named Albert, Oh my God, that's him, she whispered. The guy from the movie theater. By then, Albert had heard a version of the story, though not quite the true one, nearly all her friends had. Albert stepped in front of her, shielding her from Robert's view as they rushed back to the table where their friends were. When Margot announced that Robert was there, everyone erupted in astonishment, and then they surrounded her and hustled her out of the bar as if she were the president and they were the secret service. It was also over the top that she wondered if she was acting like a mean girl, but at the same time, she truly did feel sick and scared. So I think the part where she's like genuinely afraid, but mm -hmm. also processing like her role in creating that fear is also really something that yeah. um, a lot of women I know related to is that like, you can't report this fear. You can't, it's hard to articulate like a, a looming fear darkness inside your belly and it's hard to even express it to like your friends and your family or whoever you're trusting in that moment luckily I, I like the way that the author in this case um has her friends 
immediately come to her aid and support her and get her out because she was feeling uncomfortable but too often that doesn't necessarily happen too often like you're in a friend group and your partner's part of that uh social circle and mm-hmm. you might feel scared or you might feel like I need to get out of this or he's being too much or he's being a little bit creepy or whatever it is and they they might not acknowledge that yeah or they're like oh he's like a nice guy like he just didn't want to sleep with him that's fine because like she struggles I mean why I really liked this character in this whole story was that, like, he wasn't attractive, he wasn't really that great, he didn't have awesome social skills, so because of that, she kind of has to grapple with, like, am I just mean? Is that my problem? But, like, the fear is real. The fear right. of, what, what ultimately, what can you do to me? And ultimately, what what will people think I deserve? And there's that line about where she's saying, oh, d- did he do anything wrong? Because <laughs> it's it's very easy to go, somebody raped somebody or somebody sexually assaulted mm-hmm. or molested somebody and go, that's terrible. But when you start getting into this line of blurred consent and whether or not where he, you know, didn't assault her, but also he wasn't clearly communicating with her and reading social cues, it comes back to the Aziz Ansari kind of situation. Uh, where it's it's harder and it, a lot of guys myself included feel almost defensive at times because you know you want to you see yourself in these situations in a lot of ways because this happens to people and if you communicate about it it's great and you can get through it but people don't communicate about these problems that happen yeah i think it is a good uh point to make that many men um or male identifying uh, people feel that they see themselves in these characters or these stories or these celebrities or whomever it is, um, and then they get defensive. However, um, I think it's important for us to have those conversations and to tease out the feelings of why these men are feeling defensive. If you see yourself in that, then let's have a conversation about our culture. This is happening on a cultural level. It's not just your rapist in your backyard. It doesn't doesn't make you a a bad person if you've done this. It just means that maybe you've crossed some lines you shouldn't have in the past and you need to learn from that. You need to not do it again. Yeah, my, my partner was talking about this with me today. He was saying like he has friends and he, he was kind of thinking out loud like, well, I don't, I don't think my friends, I don't think they always know how to ask. And he was like, oh, they're adults. Yeah, they probably do know how to ask. I think they probably don't want to hear no. Mm-hmm. And it's like not that dramatically malicious. It's just that like, it's, 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 it's embarrassing. Yeah, but there's but there's a power difference, mm-hmm. and then there's this like feeling of ownership over women, and that like that you feel the right to a woman's body so much that you don't want to wait and see if they're okay with ha- what's happening. Mm-hmm. Well, a- it's it's that, uh, and I've experienced this in the moment where it's like if you think you stop and ask for consent, and she says no, oh maybe you lose this opportunity, and yeah. then there's one less you know notch on your headboard. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, I've absolutely experienced times where I went, yes, I, like, managed to have sex with this person and that's an achievement, which is really, really terrible of me to think. And it's just a mentality that society has pushed and that I'm I'm learning constantly to get over. But yeah. and do you better. unlearn it. Yeah. Right. And I then, think, yeah, oh, go ahead. I, I think that um, tying this back to hookup culture is uh, a really good illustration of why um, I avoid, <laughs> try to avoid at all costs because um, to me, like, there's an inherent, because of our rape culture, there's an inherent um, fear that is in heterosexual relationships. And because of that fear, I'm not sure that I can establish with my partner quickly enough the respect that I need and the um, mm-hmm. equity that I need in the situation if it's just a hookup. Yeah, because. Um, my relationships are, it's not enough for my relationships, my intimate romantic relationships to be nice. 
we have to be kind of revolutionary mm-hmm. in how we establish power dynamics and boundaries. We have to be really conscious about liberation, really conscious about society as it is. And that's more work than a couple of 20-year-olds want to do to do it. Right. <laughs> really quick, uh, while we're on the topic, I want to jump into... Right now, we're going to jump into an interview with Marie Harding from the Women and Gender Advocacy Center about consent. So let's hear that. We're here with Marie Harding at the WGAC. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about what you do here? Yeah. So I am actually a victim advocate in the office. And what I do in the office is really work directly with survivors of sexual assault, stalking, and relationship violence. And there's a lot of different things we can do. It may be kind of sitting down and processing through the trauma in terms of how they're feeling. They may need kind of some additional support within the classroom Mm -hmm. or kind of helping them navigate the systems Mm -hmm. and they choose to kind of report. Um, Something else that we do very frequently is just have conversations with them in terms of like, how do I disclose this information to my friends? Or Mm -hmm. I'm having problems with my support systems. Mm -hmm. So it's really just kind of working directly with survivors and seeing what they're needing in that moment. Wow, really cool work. Uh, Would you mind defining consent for us? Yeah, absolutely. So consent, in terms of kind of Colorado's legal definition, Mm -hmm. that there's really three legal elements to consent. Mm -hmm. So that's cooperation and act and attitude, exercise of free will, and knowledge of what's happening. Mm -hmm. But we kind of break it down into layman's terms, if you will, that consent is really about checking in with your partner. Mm -hmm. It's making sure that you are both or all parties are on the same page. Mm -hmm. And it's gonna be really important that you're respecting the boundaries of the other person and you're making sure that you're getting an enthusiastic affirmative yes Mm -hmm. before you're moving on with anything. And again, that's checking in before that act takes place. Um, Something else that's really important during consent, again, is respecting boundaries. So not only feeling comfortable and letting that person know what your boundaries are, but making sure that you're listening and respecting that other person's boundaries as well. A big misconception, as you probably are aware of, like people falsely reporting rapes. Um, Do you know the statistic? Because I learned it once and Mm -hmm. I forgot it. Yeah, so in terms of false reports, we actually know that less than 2% of sexual assaults reported are false. Mm -hmm. And that is actually in line with every single other crime. So lying about car theft, that's 2%. Burglary, that's 2%. So every single other crime has that about rate in terms of statistics. So we know that people aren't lying Mm -hmm. about reporting. They're not lying about sexual assault happening. There's nothing to gain. Yeah, that that is a really hard conversation to have. And that when people are coming forward, it's really important that we're listening to them and really supporting them in that moment. And we even know in terms of the stat that I just gave you, less than 2% are false reports. Even within that 2%, we know that oftentimes it really is survivors seeking out resources. It's just that they won't, they may not say exactly when it happened, or they may not say the person that, like the perpetrator's name, but that person still may be identifying as a survivor, even though when they're reporting, they may not be giving completely accurate information. Because they're scared, and that can be a very scary process to do. Not as cut and dry as just like people are maliciously trying to destroy relationships and destroy people. It's 
just a matter of like survivors finding different ways to say what happened and that's going to be counted in the same statistic. Mm -hmm. And again, even with that counted within that statistic, that is still less than 2% right. of false reports. Yeah. So if you do have a friend that's coming to you and kind of disclosing or letting you know that this has happened to them, it is so important in that moment that you believe them mm -hmm. and that you're letting them know I am here to support you. That it's not your job to play detective or investigator and kind of figure out like what happened, that in that moment, that's your friend and yeah. you need to be a support system to yeah. them. And then how does that look in a hookup culture if you're just sleeping with one person one time? Yeah, so that's a really good question. And it's really important to understand that consent should be present in every single type of relationship. So that could be hookups like you were talking about, or mm -hmm. maybe it's a booty call, mm -hmm. or a long-term relationship, yeah. or a poly relationship. Right. And kind of regardless, that consent needs to be present in every single one of those relationships. Mm -hmm. So with kind of the hookups that you were talking about, again, it's important to be able to establish boundaries and make sure that everyone's on the same page so checking in with that person being like hey like do you want to hook up tonight and then allowing that person to be like yeah I'd love to hook up tonight or mm -hmm. you know I'm not really feeling it let's let's hook up on Friday instead mm -hmm. but again within that relationship making sure that you're talking to one another that you mm -hmm. both know kind of what you're wanting out of that relationship if mm -hmm. it is a hookup is it kind of that we only want like a one night to hook up? Is this a hookup that maybe is going to happen more frequently? And being able to kind of determine that, not only for yourself, but within that relationship context. So what I'm hearing is we're not just listening for the absence of a no, we're asking for a yes. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really glad you said that. Mm -hmm. So the absence of a no is not a yes. It's really important with consent that you're getting an enthusiastic yes mm -hmm. every single time. That you know that the person you're with is wanting that to happen and is enjoying that happening. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you're absolutely correct that we really need to make sure that we're getting enthusiastic yeses from mm -hmm. the people that we're with and that we're respecting the answers regardless of what that is from the other person. I think there's a misconception that asking for that kind of clear consent can kind of be sterile or cold, but what I'm hearing for you, from you is that it's not. It, it, it is, it's part of like a sexy time. Mm -hmm. I don't know why I said that so awkwardly. <laughs> sexy. Yeah. <laughs> it is a sexy time and oftentimes we will get that question from students in terms of like well if I check in for consent isn't that going to like ruin the mood and like no absolutely not what it does it it actually it makes sex better mm -hmm. because not only can you talk to that person in terms of like this is what I'm needing or this is what I'm wanting out of the relationship but that person can also tell you what they're needing in it mm -hmm. and it can be really simple like hey does this feel good or do you want to try that position so it again is just making sure that you're having open communication and that you're on the same page and that actually makes sex way better what are the resources available for students if they have questions about consent? Yeah, so we actually have several resources that are available to students on this campus. So kind of on the campus, we have the Women and Gender Advocacy Center, and that can be a great resource in terms of if students are just wanting to come and kind of have conversations or ask questions or get some additional information that they can take with them, we can absolutely be a great resource. Um, counseling Center is also an awesome resource for students to kind of go and process in a safe space. 
And it's going to be important that both the WGC and counseling were both confidential resources, which means that students can come in and that conversation that we have is going to stay in our office. It's going to stay between the student and that other person, which can be really helpful when you're kind of asking these questions. Um, other resources that we do have on campus is our office does Relationship Violence Awareness Month. That takes place during October and can be a great resource for students to learn more about kind of different types of relationships like hookups like you're talking about or kind of one night stands or long distance relationships that so there's lots of different types and Relationship Violence Awareness Month is an awesome place to kind of learn some more information about it. Yeah, yeah consent is in every relationship and I think that is a really important part of what you're saying and what people need to learn is it's in the hookup and then even poly relationships and then long distance relationships. I mean, consent needs to be in, in phone sex. You still need consent. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it'll make phone sex that much better right. because you'll have an understanding of what that person is wanting and what you're wanting out right. of that experience. Yeah. So not only does it make kind of those interactions better, but you're absolutely right. It's a really important element and it's necessary when you're in any type of relationship. Yeah. And you all have podcasts coming up, right? Yes, we do. Um, we have a podcast coming up. Um, the Advocacy is doing it and it's going to be me, Casey and Jessica. And we are super excited mm -hmm. to roll this out during April. So our podcast is called We Believe You, Advocacy Resources and Healing Around Interpersonal Trauma. And pretty much during the podcast, we're going to be talking about all things advocacy. Mm -hmm. So how do you pick a therapist or what are some barriers I may face if I'm choosing to kind of move forward with the process? That yeah. We're going to be talking about a lot of different elements and we would love for you all to kind of tune in then. Mm -hmm. um, Carl from our office, the men's program coordinator, he also has a podcast that he's recently come out with. Him and Jake have a podcast where they talk about men and masculinity. Mm -hmm. And their podcast is called, Do You Even Lift, Bro? <laughs> men Exercising Social Justice. So again, there's a lot of kind of different resources. And I had mentioned that the podcast was going to roll out in April. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is because April is actually Sexual Assault Awareness Month. So there's going to be a lot of events during April if people are interested in kind of learning more about this topic or these issues. Mm -hmm. Well, awesome. Thank you so much for answering our questions today and being the resource that you are. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming by. Uh, the other aspect that I want to touch on uh, before we're done is the other side of this. Um, these issues are complicated, and I think that in my work, and I know Chapman probably agrees, is uh, we have to look at all sides of these issues. And so I want to bring up like um, how men of color have been affected by accusations of rape historically and even presently. Um, under Title IX, more students of color are accused of sexual misconduct than not. And then as far as who goes to prison, we kind of all know the statistics as far as that's concerned. Um, a, a good historical example is like Emmett Till. Um, and his death after being accused of like hitting on a white woman. Um, well, and that's a, and that's a, I'm sure everybody in their life who's taken a you know, ninth grade reading class has read uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the core conflict of the story is this uh, black man who's accused of sexually assaulting or raping a white woman. 
and how he he has to tries to defend himself, but it, it's an impossible. And obviously, those are very different historical settings to now, but it's not something that's gone. No, it's not gone because we have To Kill a Mockingbird, and then we have Emmett Till, a, a real person, and then right now the statistics under Title Nine. So I bring this up because if we're concerned about, and I use this word and it sounds grandiose and dramatic, but it is the word that fits, is like liberation, liberation from the oppressions that be. And so it is. it would be very white feminist and it would be naive and deaf for me to sit here and say, oppression looks like the end of rape culture because women are raped. That's true. But it also looks like actively being anti-racist in this too because I want to understand how a history of rape has caused rape culture. I never want to say this word as much as I am this episode. Oops. Um, but also understanding how rape has been used as a, another tool against men of color in our country, um, particularly black men, but also Asian men, Latino men. So I guess to end it on a better note, it's like, what what do we do now to do better? Yeah, and I think that I've been touching on this a lot, but I'm just constantly learning how to unlearn a lot of the things that are just part of society growing up as somebody who identifies as male is just these expectations that come out of quotes and quotes, boys being boys. But unlearning that is a huge part of it. And there absolutely is a responsibility for men and people in these positions of power to learn and unlearn these things, these mm-hmm. these traits all centered around consent and the way you interact with people who are inherently in a position of less power than you. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I also think that on the flip side as a woman, um, you or we need to... Um, think about how we can unlearn uh, the cultural ways that we contribute to our own oppression. And um, I think that's why I like Cat Person so much is because she's feeling responsible for her own like sexual displeasure. She's feeling responsible for all these things. Um, we need to unlearn uh, how we ourselves are contributing um, to the oppression of women yeah. um, and how we can move past that. And for me, I think that kind of looks like demanding Like, I think my personal reading of that is I demand what I want in a sexual relationship and I demand what I want in a committed relationship um, and stick to that. Uh, That's how I'm trying to do it. I I think there's many, many different ways uh, to be a woman and to be a feminist. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, I think the onus isn't necessarily on women to improve. I I Mm -hmm. think that. But unfortunately, the the problems are going to be on us and mm-hmm. the, the consequences will be on us, even if the onus isn't on us. So I think for us, it's it looks like thinking about how we've internalized this. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is when something someone is doing something to us more so than the internalized sexism. But that yeah, contributes yeah, to it, I like being the, able to end things. One, We've talked about this before. One, one example I'm thinking about, like, fear as a concept. Like, for some reason, we are attracted to men who whom we feel a little bit fearful of, like big, strong. They could hurt me. I don't yeah. know. So um, I think unlearning that type of attraction and, unlearn, like, separating separating your sexual tension from your, like, it, an exhilaration because there's a real fear there. Yeah. Yes. That's different. Mm-hmm. And I think that people confuse them and especially like pop sexualizing abusive relationships contributes to this and mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff. But like 
Uh, that's topical now, considering that Fifty Shades Freed just came out, which mm-hmm. is the story that romanticizes a very unhealthy relationship. That is, it does not. And people from the BDSM community are very much just like, yeah, this is not good. Because yeah, so and and then like Twilight is like a little micro version of that, mm-hmm. like the vanilla version, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, so unlearning it inside, uh, within ourselves. And one thing I think about is like, even when I'm with a partner, I'm with. Who, like I love and I respect I get to this point where I'm like I should just like I, I don't speak up for mm-hmm. my complaints and so like mostly because like it's really terrifying that like if I ask for a change in pace position mm-hmm. if I ask for it to stop altogether yeah. if I ask for whatever I ask for I'm not necessarily afraid that someone's gonna force me someone's gonna deny my request but I'm really afraid of their reaction to the request that's like a nuanced aspect of this is mm-hmm. that like I'm not scared someone's going to say, like, no, stay, keep doing this. But I'm scared someone's going to be mean about it. Mm-hmm. And then I'll hate them. And that sucks. <laughs> right. So I think that what we need to do, and, and this was a part of, again, this piece I've talked about before, Sexuality by uh, Kate McKinnon, is that, like, we need to really care about our ultimate liberation more than, like, just this moment of pleasure. Is that, like, I don't want to let go of this romance, but it's, like, please, please, please. I need to, at least for myself, I'm trying to make peace with, like, I can let go of this romance because what I'm looking towards ultimately is, like, real love, real Mm -hmm. liberated love. Um, And that doesn't mean, like, a married, committed relationship. It could be a random hookup or anything in between. But it means if you're hooking up or if you're having sex, then you can ask your partner, hey, can we slow down? You have no fear. No fear? no fear. Yeah. That's liberation is fearless sex. Everyone talks about communication being the core of good relationships, but for good communication to happen, there needs to be an openness between both partners and a willingness to be embarrassed and a willingness to be wrong. And the acknowledgement of power but dynamics that Mm -hmm. be. And that is awkward. It's awkward, yeah. It's awkward because you don't want to tell your partner that you're scared of them. It's awkward and it's frustrating. Because men are, you said it's defensive. You're like, why would you be scared of me? Like, I, if you don't know what Chapman looks like. (laughs) (laughs) I'm, I'm tiny and flamboyant. (laughs) Right. So like, I think, and also my partner, you met my partner. I think I'm taller than him. Yeah. And he's pretty flamboyant. My current partner is like, not not a scary looking dude like yeah so n- none of so. none of these people want to hear i'm scared of you i think right. I, I told a, right. an old an old boyfriend this i was like trying to explain the power dynamics and he was like me like i just made you breakfast <laughs> yeah right. and it's like i'm i'm sorry right. Let, let's that's the only way we're going to reach that yeah that yeah free, I, I entire agree. fearless I love it, yeah to to end or to start yeah. to wrap up uh I, I agree with Tatiana that we need to reach this fearless love and that starts with conversations with your partner and real mm-hmm. and open and honest conversations with your partner before you get into yeah. that situation. And your friends. Even if you're hooking up. Yeah, yeah and, and, your fr- and your friends and supporting yep. them in their um, decisions. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I think that was a good discussion. Uh, if you have questions or comments, feel free to email us. Uh, you can email C Croskell, C-C-R-O-S-K-E-L-L at collegian.com and we would love to discuss any agreements, disagreements you have with our show. Um, but Aaron, thank you so much for joining us today. No problem. Thank and you. we hope you tune in to our next episode. Bye.